Amen. That is who we are here for today, for Jesus Christ our King. Amen. So how many were with us uh, last week? We're tuned in online, a good number of you, yeah, so if you were with us, you know that Pastor Phil closed out the uh, First Peter series and did an incredible job, so we are moving on from First Peter. If you haven't listened to that message or other ones in the series, I encourage you to go back and listen. I do want to forewarn you, there was some exaggeration that happened last week with Pastor Phil, so especially as regards to my age. <laughs> Just know that that's uh, in there and don't, don't believe what he says. Um, but then I, I, I recalled, as I was recalling that, um, I thought about getting back at him this week since I was preaching. And, and I realized God has taught me over my many years that I can be patient, so I'll wait. Um, I did hear, though, that last week, of all the jokes he told you guys laughed at that one the hardest. I'm a little offended. If you didn't learn anything last week, you should learn to respect your elders. So I demand a little more respect and get off my lawn, right? All right. Um, we are uh, going to be in a traditional Palm Sunday passage. And I, I got to confess, sometimes I don't know what to do with Palm Sunday. Like even as a pastor sometimes, because Palm Sunday always seems a little anticlimactic. Like, yes, there's this big party and prayed for Jesus as king, but then they crucify him five days later or six or so. And... So I, I, I kind of struggle to see what, what am I supposed to do with Palm Sunday, because really the victory is Easter Sunday, right? But, but what we're going to find here today is, is that people were celebrating him as king, and he rightfully was king. We'll talk about that. And he came to claim his victory, and his victory was going to happen. And here's the thing, what happened later in the week didn't change any of that. He, he was still king. His victory was still sure. This parade and this party is still a party for him to be the true king because he always is, even when he was hanging on the cross. So Jesus Christ is our king. And that is uh, what we celebrate today. We got to understand, though, that we um, don't, we got to know that we don't understand this. I think we don't. We say Jesus Christ is king, and we say yes and amen, and we shout that out loud, and yet I don't think we have any idea what it means to have a king, because we're Americans. We don't like kings. We've had a party for over 200, almost 250 years. We've been partying once a year, every year, that we're free of kings, because our last experience with kings was about taxation without representation and high-priced tea, right? And now our experience with monarchy is the, the British royal family who is tabloid fodder and not much else, right? I don't think we have any idea what it means to have a king, and that's a problem because as Americans, we've, we celebrate freedom so much, and I am so grateful for freedom, and yes, it is a good gift from God, and yet freedom, I think, in some ways for us as Americans has become the highest good. Freedom is the highest good, and so we have a problem with authority. And that's trouble when we come into the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God has authority. So, my hope and my prayer today is that we learn what it actually means when we call Jesus our king. So let me, let me pray for our time, and then we're going to be diving into Luke 19. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for your kingship, even when we don't know what it means. Even when we act like we're kings. And like we're in control, and that's the way we want it. God, I thank you that you are greater than our wants. Your strength is greater than ours. Your thoughts are higher than ours. And so we ask for your thoughts this morning, Lord. We ask that you would uncover blind eyes. And that you would soften dull hearts. And that you would enable us to hear once again that you are king. And that, sh that should challenge us a lot more than it actually does most of the time. Thank you for forgiving me for not being challenged by this the way I should be, Lord. And, and Lord, I thank you that it's also so much better than we could possibly imagine to have you as our king.
So God, open our eyes and hearts to that today. Scour us in any way that we need to hear from your word. I pray that you would speak clearly through it so that we are transformed more into your people, more into the people that you created us to be in the first place. We praise you for it. And all God's people said amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 19, we are going to be starting in verse 28. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to it, but I am going to put it up on the screen. It says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And this is what they shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet... The stones are going to cry out. I love that. There is some praise that is going to happen today. And if they don't do it, Jesus says, the stones are going to have to do it because I am worthy of praise. And so somebody's going to praise me. This is the choice we face every day. He's worthy of our praise. Are we going to praise him? Because there's, there's praise that's going to be lifted to him from all of creation and from others around us. But are we going to join in that praise? So I hope we do this morning as we go through this. I want to start out uh, back at the first verse I read. It says this, after Jesus said this. And we should be asking, after Jesus said what? So if you start any Bible passage and it, it, it reads like this, back up and find out what was going on before this. And if you back up. You're going to have to do some of this on your own because I'm not going to read it all to you. But right before this, Jesus told a parable. And he told a parable about a ruler who was going to leave for a little while. And the ruler gave some money to several of his servants. And he said, put it to work. And then the, the ruler goes off and the ruler comes back. And some of the servants do well and some of them don't. And he gives them rewards and everything. And I'm not going to read any of those parts of the parable, which is kind of a preaching faux pas. But... You know, you can read that passage on your own. There's a whole other message there that is not this morning's message. But I want to focus on the other verses that are part of that parable. I want to focus on the context Jesus gives to that parable because it's important for the triumphal entry today. It says this, when he started this parable, this is how he started it. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Some translations say he went to a distant country to receive his kingship. And then to return. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. So, as Jesus is telling this story, the Jewish audience that is hearing this, this is going to sound really familiar for them. Because about 30 years ago, this is what happened. 30 years before the time Jesus is telling um, this parable, give or take, Herod the Great died. And Herod the Great had a couple of sons. And one of them was named Archelaus. And his inheritance from his father was to be king of Judea. Because that's what Herod was. Herod was king over all this area. And so Archelaus' inheritance was to be the next king after him. Here's the catch. He couldn't just crown himself king. He had to travel to a distant land called Rome and get himself crowned by Caesar to affirm his inheritance. And you know what the Jewish people did? They didn't want him to be king. And so they gathered 50 Jews together and they sent a delegation to Rome after him to tell Caesar, we don't want this man to be our king. How do you think that worked out? It it didn't work out so hot. Now, he he didn't come back and there's various reasons he wasn't actually named king, but he did come back with all the authority and power, so he might as well have been named king. So this is a really familiar scenario to 
Jesus' audience. And he says, he's, he's reminding them this is how kingdoms work. Because the whole next week, it's all going to be about a kingdom. Two competing kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And so as he reminds them about this kingdom, though, you fast forward through the parable and the people get their rewards or not as they have worked their money. But then it says this at the end of the parable, but those enemies of mine, this is what the king said when he comes back, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And all those comparisons that we put between Jesus and that king in the parable were like, well, that's out the window, right? Because this is kind of harsh. I mean, can't you just expel them out of the kingdom if they don't want you to be their king? Like, don't they get any say in this whatsoever? But listen, this is what we have to remember. That's not how kingdoms work. And so when you see people that don't want this man to be their king over them, and yet he is their king, this isn't harsh. This is just justice. That they would be killed in front of him. And it's a hard justice for us to bear because we think, well, they should have a say, right? Why should they have this king forced on them? And, and us as, as good Americans, we don't want to hear this. We want to hear that we get a vote, right? That's not the way kingdoms work. That's not the way the kingdoms of men work. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. Here's what I want to tell you, and this is going to really injure your American pride. Here's what matters. Here's what you need to know when it comes to the kingdom of God. Your vote doesn't count. We don't want to hear that, right? We want to go to the polls and get our little sticker. I voted with the American flag on it. Woo! Yay me! I voted. You don't get a vote. It's not how kingdoms work. That's not how God king God's kingdom works. So if you're in here today and you say, yeah, I've heard Jesus is king. Maybe he's your king. He's, I, don't, I don't want him as king. Can I tell you something? It doesn't matter if you want him as king. See, see it doesn't matter what you think about the truth. That doesn't change the truth. What you want, if you want Jesus to be king, that doesn't really matter. He's king. It's kind of a take it or leave it thing. And so here, here's what I want to tell you, why, I, why I'm telling you your vote doesn't count. Because even if you reject the authority of Jesus Christ, it doesn't cancel his authority. See, Jesus is the rightful king. He is the rightful king. You don't get a vote. You don't get a wish. You don't get input. He's king, period. And here's the only choice before you. So submit to the right kingdom. Because there are two kingdoms. And the option, if you don't submit to Jesus, it, it, you're saying like those, those people in the parable slaughtered right in front of the king. Yeah, that's justice. Because they're in rebellion against the king. That's what happens when you rebel against a king. Can I tell you something? You, me, all of us, we're rebels. Every single one of us, we've rebelled against the king. So you say, I don't want Jesus in my king. Well, here come justice. Slaughtered in front of the king. Hmm. <laughs> Got one guy praising God. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. It's a hard praise to offer, isn't it? Because let's be honest, we don't like kingship. I'm used to, in Christian high school, Christian college, sitting in my classes and having political science conversations about how the most biblical form of government is a democratic republic. And we love that because that's, if you didn't know, that's our form of government in America, democratic republic. I happen to think that's a pretty good form of government when it comes to human government. But can I tell you something? That is not a biblical form of government. The biblical form of government, of, of reality overall, is a monarchy and Jesus is king. That's it. And what happens to rebel, rebels against the king is they get brought before the king and slaughtered for their rebellion. And, and here's the thing, though. This is where Jesus is going to turn this story on its head. Because later this week, he is coming to be crowned king. See, the king, the Lord, he's, he's going to come and he's going to go off to a distant place, a distant land, to be crowned king. And that's going to happen. And he's going to come back. And you know what he's going to say to his disciples and everybody who gathered on a hilltop with ears to listen? He's going to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is what Jesus says. He went away to be crowned king. And it happened. And he came back. And he's king. And it doesn't matter what you want. 
But then he turns the parable on its head because later in the week, he's going to get a crown. And later in the week, he's going to bring before him all those who are his enemies, all those who said, we don't want this man to be king. And he is going to be slaughtered in front of them. He is not going to say, you must be slaughtered in front of me. He's going to say, all right, guys, you you didn't want me as your king? Watch this. He's going to get up on a cross and willingly be slaughtered for their rebellion. And not just theirs, for yours, for mine. And so we don't get to choose our king. He's king, whether you like it or not. The only thing we get to choose is, are you going to submit to his kingdom, because it's the only right one. You have been, I have been, in rebellion against the God of all creation, the king of life. And when you're in rebellion against the king of life, the only other kingdom available is death. Will we submit to the right kingdom? Because we find when we do submit to him, life is found there. Life is found not when we get our way, not when we get our vote. Life is found when we submit to the rightful king and to the right kingdom. So what does it mean to submit to our king? Let me tell you as we go through the passage here. It says, Jesus says to his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Simple task. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners, they they did what Jesus predicted. They said, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And that's it. That's all that happens. And I I read some commentaries about this passage. And you know what some of the commentators say about this passage? They say, well, Jesus had friends in this town. And he set this up ahead of time. He told them that he was going to need their cult sometime. And and that he was going to send disciples ahead. And they said, okay. And he had this all planned out. Isn't he wonderful? And I think, okay, well, maybe that happened. I'm all for like imagining we're in the scene and what might have happened here. And I love the chosen and all that stuff. So, right, we can imagine what might have happened here. But what that doesn't tell me is if Jesus just went to his buddies and said, hey, can I borrow the car next week? That doesn't tell me why Matthew, Mark, and Luke think this is such a great series of events that they should tell us about it. Why do they think this is so wonderful if Jesus was just calling up an Uber driver? There must be something more going on here. And I, and I think there is. So maybe, maybe these people were his friends. Maybe, maybe he did but did something ahead of time here, but I don't think Luke's point in telling us this and the other gospel writers is just to say, wow, can't Jesus think ahead? He's great. It's to tell us he's king. He's king. And as king, he's sovereign over all of it. He rules everything. Even down to, even down to this, he knows in the next town coming up, there's going to be a cult. And he knows that that cold isn't going to be in a barn, it's going to be tied up for you to see when you walk down the street. And he knows that colt has, he knows the whole history of that donkey. He knows the history of a donkey that has never been ridden. And he knows that that donkey is precious so that you can't just untie that colt and its owners aren't going to say something. They are holding that for something. He knows that donkey's precious. And he knows, he knows this. I think maybe most importantly of all, he knows the heart's of the people who own that donkey. So, so he tells his disciples, here's what you're going to have to say. When you take their donkey and they ask you, what are you doing? Here's what you're going to have to say. The Lord has need of it. And that's it. And, and, and that's what happens. They, they, they go and they untie it and, and the owners will say, what are, what are you doing with the donkey? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And they say, oh, okay. And all of a sudden, that's enough. And, and I wonder for you and for me today, like, is that enough for us? Like, like, the Lord has need of it. Is that enough? I, I find a lot of times in my life that that hasn't been enough for me. I mean, God tells me something in his word. He says, I, 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 I've got something I want you to do. I've got some of your life that I need you to turn over to me. I've got some of your thought patterns or your money 
or your soul or your heart that, that I, there's a corner that you're keeping back and I have need of it. And I say, well, but what about? And his word isn't enough. Here's the thing. Our king rules. He is a ruling king. Will we let his word be enough? What does this look like in our lives? Well, let's talk about some areas of life that could look like. Let's talk about money. Get uncomfortable quick. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, that makes sense to me. So, where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. So I need to look at my budget. I need to look how my, I'm spending my money. And is there, is there money that I am putting towards God's kingdom? Well, it, it makes sense. Okay, if, if I need to look at that budget, I, I, I'm a numbers guy. I like numbers. So I should, I should how, how much? How much should I put towards there? And I got to watch that because even in the question I'm asking, I'm asking how much can I give and not feel guilty about it? How much can I give so that I can keep the rest for myself? We've got to watch what's in our hearts, folks. Hearts are deceptive. You'll trick yourself if you don't watch it. And do you know what? God provides an answer. There's this biblical principle of a tithe. A tithe. 10% is what it means. 10% of your money. And some of you are going, oh boy. You're not going here, are you? Yeah, I'm going here. You're saying we don't live, in, live in under the law. Yeah, I know we don't live under the law. Neither did Abraham. Almost 6,000 years ago when this principle was established of a tithe, of a tenth of, a, of income. And so when I look at my finances, it, it, it goes all the way through. This principle of tithe goes all the way through. Jesus, You say, I'm not under the law. Jesus, I, I'm, I'm under Jesus. I follow him, not the law. Well, great. Jesus affirmed the tithe. Oh, and by the way, other times he talked about money, he talked, about a, he talked to a rich young ruler, and he told, told that rich young ruler to give it all away. And he stood with his disciples, and he pointed out this poor widow in the temple who was giving two coins, just a measly two coins. And he said, that's all she has. Oh, she's so blessed. So if you follow Jesus, the ante might be more than 10%. Just saying. But here's the thing, we hear 10% in tithe and we make all these excuses, right? Well, is that net or is that gross? I'd, mm, like to explain that to me first. Just tithe on something. We say, I'm not under the law, I'm under Jesus. Well, Jesus affirmed it. We say, well, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver and I will not be cheerful if I give all this, so I need to back off a little bit. Paul didn't say God loves a cheerful giver so that we change what we give. Paul said God loves a cheerful giver so that we give anyway and we allow him to change our hearts. So that we turn into these people who are all out crazy, off their rockers, generous, just like our God. Hmm. So I look, so what are you saying to me, right? Am I saying you need to go home and change your budget right now and give away 10%? I am not telling you that. I'm not your king. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Go sit with the word of God. And if you feel shame, preach against that because our God is not the God who, uh, of shame. If you are in Jesus Christ, there is no shame over you. But sit with the word of God and allow him to speak to your heart and listen to your king and let the word of the king be enough. Will we let his word be enough? It goes for money. What about time? Do we do this with our time? If we look at our schedules, is there a biblical principle that talks about how we spend our time? Well, just, it's, it's funny, just like money, there's this principle about one-tenth of our money is a good starting place. And there were gifts and offerings on top of that, but about one-tenth, a tithe, this is a good place to start with money. What's a good place to start with time? Do you know this, this biblical principle that about one-seventh of our waking hours should be devoted to God in a unique way? It's called the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We say, well, that was for those Old Testament folks. Well, you know, why, you know why God told them to honor the Sabbath? <laughs> There's two different passages that talk about the Sabbath. And he, he says two different things. The first one, he says, because 
honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because your God created all this in six days and then he took a rest on the Sabbath. Not because he was tired. Not because he was tired. To enjoy what was done. And he says, so you honor the Sabbath because if God wasn't, busy, wasn't so busy that he couldn't take a rest and enjoy what he had created, you aren't so busy controlling all your life, managing and bringing all the, in the income and working 16 jobs, you aren't so busy that you can't stop and enjoy what God has entrusted to you. But we hear Sabbath and we think, well, am I allowed to go out to eat or not? Because I'm making that server work then on the Sabbath. And Don't. That's not what it's about. Can you sit down in a restaurant and enjoy a good steak, maybe even a glass of wine, and just breathe that in and taste that steak that melts in your mouth? And does it roll up in praise to God? Well, I bet that can be part of your Sabbath. Do you wash that car and you are so grateful for that car, for that gift that God has entrusted to you? You just love that car. Nobody else would understand the love that you have for that car, but you love that car. And you love it not because it's a car, but you love it as a gift that God has entrusted to you. And so when you wash that car, it's praise to God. So go wash your car. This isn't law. This is come and join my creation. You know what else? You know the other reason that he gives in, in scripture for Sabbath? He tells them in another scripture, go enjoy Sabbath. He's talking to the Israelites because you aren't slaves anymore. You're free. You're free, people. We, we sang it earlier today. Free, free, forever I'm free. Do you know you're free? Then why are you so bound up in your work? Why do you work your fingers to the bone as if you are taking care of you? There is a God who has freed you from all that. He's taken care of you. So I know, not all of us can honor the Sabbath in the traditional way, and maybe it's not a whole chunk of a whole day. Maybe your schedule's crazy, and you do have to work two jobs to provide for your family and all that. Do you have time dedicated and set apart to honor God in a unique way? If you look back at your this past week? Is it more than just your hour quiet time of day? Is there something else in your schedule that says, I'm going to set this apart as praise to the living God and enjoy the gifts he's entrusted to me, enjoy the way he's wired me, but it's all Sabbath, it's all praise to him. Is what he's said about our time, is it enough? Is his word enough? I'll go one other place with this. What about our bodies? What about our bodies? So, you know, a big conversation that continues on, even though the law has changed, the law of the land has changed, and it's back down to the state level, abortion continues to be across the headlines, right? Pro-lifers like me arguing against it, pro-choicers arguing for it. And what's the one thing, what's the one sign you're guaranteed to see at any pro-choice rally, at any protest, Against pro-lifers, what, what sign are you guaranteed to see? You are guaranteed to see a sign that says, my body, my choice. And, and, and these, these women in particular, or men, if they're on, on that side of the issue, they're, they're saying, listen, you have no right, you pro-lifer have no right to tell me what to do with, your bo- with my body. You know what? They're right. That's a good argument. I, I'm pro-life. I, don't, I, have, I have no right to tell you what to do with your body, to tell those women what to do with their bodies. And they're saying, is my body my choice? Because the government doesn't own my body. They have no right to tell me what to do with my body. You know what? That's a good point. They don't. I don't think the government should have a right to tell us what to do with our bodies. Yeah. Here's the problem with that argument, though. Your body isn't your body either. My body, my choice. Here's the thing. It's, it's not yours. I'm sorry, it isn't. You've got a different king, and it's not you. And that body doesn't belong to you. Paul said, don't you know? <laughs> haven't you heard this? Oh, if you haven't heard it, let me tell you. Uh, your bodies are a temple of the, uh, temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit of the living God lives in you. And you know what your body is? It's a temple for him to be offered in worship. 
the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You have no right to say my body, my choice anymore because it isn't yours. You are not your own. You were bought for the highest price anybody has ever paid for anything. The very blood of the incarnate God poured out for you. Do you know how much you were worth? Priceless. And he paid it. He paid that whole cost for you. He bought you completely. So you don't belong to you anymore. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And that's why it is not okay to abort a baby. Because it's not your body. Oh, but the application exceeds far that. Let me, let me just say, as I'm saying that, as I bring up the issue of abortion, some of you in here may have experienced that, gone through that, made that choice. Some of you men might, might have encouraged a significant other to make that choice. I want to say shame off of you. You don't need to bear the weight of that sin anymore. You don't need to bear that res- weight of responsibility anymore. Jesus died for that one too. You can bring it, bring it to him Confess and repent and be free. His blood was enough to pay for that one too. So I don't say this to bring shame on anyone. I just say this to say that the argument doesn't hold. The argument for abortion and the argument for any other ways that we use our bodies as if we owned them. This includes our sexual lives. Married, single, whatever, with somebody else, alone. You're using your body for your pleasure? For self-satisfaction? Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> See, it doesn't belong to you. It, it, it belongs to him. And there's, there's a way in the boundaries he's set between a husband and a wife, there's a way to use your body for his glory and in a self-offering way, a self-sacrificial way. And it's enjoyable too, don't get me wrong, but to offer yourself in that way because your body does not belong to you anymore. And it goes beyond that. It goes to what we eat. It goes to our fitness. That body that you just put anything into, I've done that too. I've gone through seasons where I just put anything into it. Whole sleeves of Oreos, just putting them in. Whatever. I I could go through a bag of chips in one sitting. Family size, I could do that, you know. The thing of nacho cheese, sweating there all the time. I'd go through it all, yeah. Oh, but my body isn't mine. Is that the best? Oh, no, I, can, I can enjoy some of that once in a while, but, but this body's a temple. Don't you, don't you understand? This body, it's like, it's like your money, it's like your time. This body is a gift. This body is a gift for you. This, this is a gift. No, I know. No, it doesn't look like it. I know. You're like, the wrapping is a little shit. Yeah, I know, I know. It's not a gift to you, it's a gift to me. I look in the mirror and I think this wrapping is pretty shoddy. You might look in the mirror and you think this, this wrapping is pretty shoddy. This is a gift to you. It's not your own. It's not yours to do with what you want. Just to think, well, I screwed up yesterday. I'll just keep going. No. It's his. Bought with a price. Paid for. Honor him with. So glorify God in your bodies. There's a, there's a way to walk every day, glorifying God in your body. Will we do, is what he said, is his word enough for us? Because it's all his. Mind, money, time, body, it's all his. Here's the good news, though. I know this sounds harsh. I know this sounds heavy. It sounds like a lot of rules. i got to try to figure This isn't rules. This is a relationship with our king, and this is how you submit to your king. And here's the best news, though, is all of this stuff that we submit to him, my money, my time, my body, my resources, my career, everything else, do you know what? He has a better use for it than you do. Oh, he has so much, so much of a better use for it than any of us do. Like, look at this, look at this donkey. Like, this donkey, what would the owners have used him for? Do you, do you realize the conversation that could have happened is like, why, why, how, when are you going to bring the donkey back? There was none of that. 
we need the donkey at four o'clock today because I got this thing. No, there was nothing. I'm saving this donkey for a dowry for my daughter. No, my, my son's going to be afraid. There was none of that. The Lord had need of it, and that was enough. But, look, but look, at, look at what he did with it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Jesus put this donkey to use far better than those owners ever could have. He put it to use fulfilling a centuries-old prophecy to affirm himself as the Messiah. Back in Zechariah, it said, Behold, your king rides. He's coming to you on a donkey. Do you see? And here he is. He's proclaiming himself the Messiah. The the Israelites would have reflected back. I know we say the donkey's a humble ride, right? Instead of a war horse. But listen, Solomon, you look back in 1 Kings, when Solomon was crowned, you know how he got to his crowning? He rode a mule. He rode a donkey. These Israelites would have remembered that and said, oh, our last greatest king rode into town on a donkey to get crowned. Our last greatest king is riding into a town on a donkey to get crowned. And they spread their cloaks out on the road. I mean, this was something that back in those days, Greeks, Romans, you know what they did? They spread their cloaks out on the road. Do you know when they did it? They did it when there was a parade, when they were worshiping their idols. And this image of their God was paraded through the streets. And you know what they did before that? They threw their coats down in front of it. And here these Israelites are throwing their coats down before the one true and living God, the only one who's worthy of it. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles that they had seen. And they, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the other gospels tell us that they're, they're bringing palms to him because palms are a sign of victory for kings in those days. It's a sign that victory has been won. And you know what we do with the palms today? You're going to walk out of here, you're going to get a palm and, and, and there's instructions out there you can take with you because you can take your palm home and you can shape it into a cross like this. And it's a symbol that as, as Jesus rode into town there, he was a victorious king. And he didn't stop being victorious as he rode into town. He continued to be victorious right up unto and through death. So the sign of the very cross itself would become a sign of his victory. This is how they are praising him. And man, think, what what must have that looked like? Think what that must have looked like. People shouting for a parade, cheering, singing, all in unison, voices raised high, taking the, the shirt off their back and putting it down in front of them. Breaking down trees and bringing it out to them. We don't have much to compare it to, right? Compared to maybe a sports celebration after a sports team wins, but come on. And I compare it to my worship sometimes. <laughs> Does my worship look like that? Huh. I mean, sometimes I find myself worshiping. Just just worshiping. Free, free, forever I'm free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. I'm free, free forever, amen. Really? Really? I mean, I mean, is that worship in spirit and truth? And, and I know some of you are thinking, are you going to tell me to raise your hand, my hands? I don't know. Like, I'm not telling you to take on a posture. I'm asking you, does the joy of the Lord well up in you when you sing songs to him? I, I, I'm asking you, when, when you sing songs... Praising God. Are you actually praising him for the ways he has shown up in your life? This is what they were, they were doing. They saw Jesus is a worthy king. He is a worthy king. That's why it's no trouble to submit to him, no trouble to obey him. That's why they can praise him this joyfully and lay all this down because he is worthy. So worship him aware of what he's done. Aware of what he's done. Do you know that they were, why could they get so joyful Worshiping him in this way. Praising him and shouting his name and raising hands and whatever they were singing songs. They had just, not too long ago, seen Lazarus raised from the dead. 
They, they saw their friend raised from the dead. That's going to make me shout and jump and go all crazy. How many of us, do we, do we try to, in, in worship, we, we sing these songs and we try to muster up something that's not there. Like, he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now, and we'll sing that, and that's a good lyric. But we try to muster up something when we, we, we wait for the music to build and for the singing to get really loud and everything until we, until we try to feel it. You know, what, if, what if when we sang, he was faithful then, we were actually reflecting on how he has been faithful then? To, to you and to me, and he's been faithful to you in different ways than he has been to me, but he has been faithful, amen? And what if I sang that? I was actually reflecting that. I didn't offer to God empty worship and wasn't trying to muster up a feeling just because the music was good. But I was actually saying, oh, my, my heart's in these words because God has been faithful then. And so because he has, I know he will be faithful now. You know what it says? It says they were worshiping God in a loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. What miracles have you seen? I wonder. You say I haven't seen any miracles. You've seen miracles. <laughs> oh, you've seen miracles. I want to introduce you to a brother that's seen miracles. Experienced them himself. Dan Kidd is a brother in the Lord, part of the family here at Grace. And he's graciously offered to share some of his life story with us about how God has worked in his life. Would you please welcome Dan to the stage? Good morning. Uh, my name is Dan Kidd. Just a little about me. Um, I've lived in Shrewsbury my whole life. Uh, an older policeman friend led me to Christ at age 18. I was a tool and die maker for 20 years and returned to school to get a degree in graphic and web design when I was 40. My story begins when I was working as an armed security guard at Fort Meade, Maryland, and I was in the best physical shape of my life. They say time heals all wounds, but in my case, it's hard to share this story as time goes on because it opens old wounds I would like to forget. I rolled out of bed for work at 5 a.m. on Mother's Day in 2004. I could only walk sideways. In the shower, I nearly fell over. I had a horrible migraine and I started throwing up. I looked in the mirror and something about my mouth looked crooked. I Googled the symptoms I had. Severe headache, weakness on one side, droopy face, slurred speech, and impaired balance. Everything matched. I was having a stroke. I woke up my wife, Kim, who was an RN, and told her something really bad is happening. Kim took my blood pressure, it skyrocketed. She put me in the car and drove to the hospital. There as doctors ran tests to prescribe medicines. Kim noticed something in my voice and lured the staff. I sounded like I had cotton in my mouth. The slurring became worse. I felt like wherever language came from in my brain was a hole that was closing up rapidly. They diagnosed me as having a stroke. And I had some paralysis in my arms and legs. My speech continued to deteriorate. I was in York Hospital for a week. I was moved from York Hospital to York, Base, York Rehabilitation Hospital where Kim worked. And my sentences began breaking off mid-thought. Then my words broke up. I knew what I wanted to say, but something blocked my ability to convert, convert thoughts to spoken language. It was like everything I knew about language and speech had been turned into some kind of foreign language. I did not understand, and I did not know what to do with it. Four weeks after my stroke, I was speechless. It was June, 40, June 2004, and I was 41 years old. To communicate, I had to write, point, gesture, and write notes. The stroke damaged the language center of my brain. I had to avoid drive-through windows and began carrying dry erase board and markers everywhere I went to communicate. I went to several months of speech therapy and was told if my language didn't return within six months to a year, I was unlikely to regain it. Speech therapy did not help at all, and it created too much stress and frustration. I was a father. Kim and I were raising two teenage sons. I was an outgoing guy. So this experience turned my world upside down, left me feeling helpless at times. Not everyone understood my condition. Sometimes people assumed I was deaf or mentally impaired, 
I was annoyed that I couldn't explain my condition. I even tried sign language, language classes at work, but that it didn't make any sense to me, and I lost my brain hearing coordination. I could still read, write, and understand spoken language. I just could not talk anymore. I went back to work after six months, and they offered me a new position as a graphics and web designer. They bought me a machine that could speak the words I typed into it. We called my machine Dennis, because that's the male voice I chose. As a web designer, I relied on email and my talking machine, Dennis, to help me communicate. I spent hours searching for something to give me hope. I even volunteered for clinical trials for new treatments and drugs, but they told me I didn't have anything to work with. I encountered others kind of like me, but none had the answers I sought. The doctors told me I needed to adapt to the new me, but I was not giving up. I tried to practice speech exercises at home, but it was just pointless. A longtime believer, I often prayed, how could this happen, I asked God. What had I done wrong? Would I be this way forever? I leaned on this verse from 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes I question my faith. Many nights before I went to sleep, I prayed I would not wake up the next day to live like this. It was literally driving me crazy. I prayed for patience, strength, and healing. I went forward in church services many times for anointing by the elders and prayer for healing. I promised God that if he ever restored my speech, I would tell the world about it. Church had always been a second home to me. There I was among family, but I felt left out during worship services. Those around me sang along with the guitar and drums and praise, but I couldn't sing any more than I could talk. Words became scrambled in a tangled mis tangle of misfiring neurons somewhere between my brain and tongue, exactly what happened when I tried to speak. To escape, I retreated to my garage, worked on cars, and got on my motorcycle and rode the hills of York County. It was the only time I felt normal. Among the trees and open air, my loud exhaust pipes could be heard for miles, and I felt closer to God. Texting, texting became my main form of communication. However, I called my own cell phone occasionally to listen to the greeting I recorded years earlier. I would just, just I, want, I wanted to be able to hear my, the sound of my own voice again. In May 2009, my family was at church. The youth band was playing the song, How Great Is Our God, by Chris Tomlin. During the first seconds of the song, I was just thinking how much I wish I could be singing this. What happened next is really hard to explain, but I felt a real presence, the Lord's presence, right there, go through me. I felt like a jolt of electricity hit me, and I felt and heard something kind of pop in my head. I started mouthing the words silently. The first words that were audible were, how great is our God. I could feel that path to language opening back up. I, I started crying because I didn't understand what was happening. And I ran to a tiny room off the sanctuary. My wife and son and a few close friends followed me. And I wrote on my dry erase board, my speech is coming back, sing, sing anything. We all stumbled through how great is our God two or three times a cappella. My friend and mentor, Paul, carried a note to the pastor asking him to pray that something amazing was happening to me. Pastor Chris stopped the service and had everyone pray for me. I repeated each lyric as tears streamed down my face. I struggled, but my voice, choppy and hesitant, sounded clearer and louder with each round of the song. We flipped open songbooks and picked another song. Then my son Ryan asked me if I could only repeat things or if I could speak on my own. Can you say our names, he said. I went around the room naming each person. We all cried together. Something miraculous had just happened. I stood up and hugged my wife, Kim, and told her out loud that I loved her for the first time in five years. Tearing and amazed, she hugged me back. 
It was the first time I had spoken her name or anyone's name in nearly five years. My friend and mentor Paul carried another note to the pastor who announced that I had something to share at the end of the service. At the end of the service, I walked to the front of the church behind the pulpit and said, hi, this is Dan, I'm back. The, the church erupted in applause and praise to God. There was not a dry eye in the congregation. It was the first time that many in the pews had heard my voice. They sang, How Great Is Our God, again, and after the benediction, I walked to the front of the church again. One more thing I said, I don't need this thing anymore. And I snapped my dry erase board in half and placed it on the altar. The church service ended with everyone praising and rejoicing to God and crying because of what God had done. God had performed a miracle right in front of everyone. I was felt relieved to be speaking again, but also very disoriented. What I took five years adapting to was now different. I was not the same person as I was before I had the stroke. It changed me. I felt lost. Sometimes I still do. This miraculous healing didn't come without challenges. The experience was very traumatic, and I still find myself feeling anxious when remembering how hard it was in talking about it. The next few days, I visited three doctors, including my neurologist, who was in Hershey, and he was the head of the Hershey Medical Center, Department of Neurology. I went up and just started talking to him. He broke down in tears and said, medically speaking, as a doctor, this is impossible, but I am a believer, and this is, this is definitely a God thing. All my doctors told me they had never seen anything like this before. After three or four days, I went back to work. Co-workers surprised me on my first day back at work with a pair of cakes. One read, congratulations, Dan. The other one said, happy retirement, Dennis. <laughs> and of course, Dennis, Dennis was my talking machine, so he retired that day. There were 30 people including several atheists in the conference room that day, and they asked me to tell them what had happened. Usually in a government office building, you were not supposed to talk about your faith, but I was asked to share it. Jimmy, a coworker and professing, professing atheist, called me later that day on the phone and said, I want to know exactly what happened in your church that day. So I told him exactly what happened. He just kept saying, I just don't understand. Since that time, God has given me many opportunities to share this testimony. It's opened doors for sharing that would never have had otherwise. It's been 13 years since this happened, but it still seems like yesterday. So in closing, I just need to say God is still in the miracle and healing business, even when things seem like they are hopeless. Maybe things don't happen when you want them to, but God is still in control. Put your trust and faith in him. I hope sharing my story of God working in my life today has brought some encouragement and strengthened the faith of someone here. Thank you for allowing me to share my life story. Thank you, Dan. And they praised God for all the miracles they had seen. Did you see him walking? <laughs> you hear him talking to us? It's a walking miracle. Let me tell you something. So are you. Yeah, I know you don't think it, but if you are in Jesus Christ, so are you. Your story isn't like Dan's, but it's still beautiful. Still a testimony of who, how worthy our king is, that his heart is still for us, that he is still in the healing business. If you are in Christ, listen, you were dead. Now you're alive. Now you're alive. Do we praise him for what? Are we aware of what he has done in our lives? Because that's going to change how we worship. And it's actually going to show us the heart of our king. Show us that he's still good. So, so all this obedience I was talking about earlier and the surrender to our king and how hard and harsh that sounded, all of a sudden it's not hard and harsh anymore because our king's good. We trust the heart of the one we're surrendering to. 
There's one other thing that can keep us from worship. Real quick. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Pharisees are like, shut them up. Which incidentally is, what gonna ha- is what's going to happen when you tell of the miracles that Jesus has worked in your life. There will be those who tell you to shut up. Don't. <laughs> tell them nicely, but don't. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You know, it occurred to me as I read this passage this week that like these people, we say it around, we've said it already this morning at one or, one or two times, like these people that are praising God right now, uh, a little bit later this week, we're going to be remembering Good Friday when, the, when they were shouting, crucify him. And so it occurred to me, you know, the, the Pharisees are asking for the wrong reason. They don't think Jesus is worthy of worship. He is. But man, wouldn't Jesus have been tempted to say, well, you know what? You said that. Now that you said that, these, guys, these jerks are going to forget I'm king a little later this week. They're going to cry out for me to die. So not for the reasons you say, but you know what? Like, hey, guys, be quiet. I don't want to hear your worship. Didn't. No, knowing that they would shout crucify him later in the, work, the week, you know what he did? He received the worship. Because the worship offered wasn't about how worthy they were. The worship was about how worthy he is. And I wonder if some of us, what keeps us from worship, what keeps us from obedience, what keeps us from surrender in our lives, I wonder if it's shame. I wonder if there's shame around, yeah, sure, God has done things for me, but I haven't done much for him, and I've messed up quite a bit lately, so he doesn't want to hear my song. Jesus received their worship, and they were going to crucify him later in the week. Sometimes we hear again, like I'm supposed to surrender that area of my life. I've surrendered it a hundred times before, and I've failed a hundred times in a row. It's not about whether you've earned the right to surrender that. He's earned the right for you to surrender it. So lay it down. If you've disobeyed a hundred times in the same area, obey him again. Not because you are worthy of it, but because he is. And surrender. Money, time, body, all of it. You say, well, God God doesn't have much to work with in me, right? Shame tells us that sometimes. I've got nothing to offer, God. Let him, let him decide that. He made you. He's pretty good at making stuff. And you surrendering to him isn't about you being worthy of him doing work through you. He's worthy of the work and he'll do it. So back in medieval times, there was this ceremony they used to do. It was called a homage ceremony. And in medieval times, a a, a serf or a servant or a landowner would go before a king that they were going to offer homage to. And the king would sit on his throne, and the king would sit with his hands open like this. And the servant or the landowner would come, and they would bow before him and put their palms together and put their hands inside the king's hands. And they would say this, I am your man. See, because they could offer felty to lots of different kings. They could offer allegiance to lots of different kings. They could offer to be at peace with lots of different kings. But they could only offer homage to one king. Because there was only one king who they could say, I am your man. You don't get to say it to more than one. And when they said that, that meant land, family, own whatever I own, livestock, strength, body, all of it. It's yours. You got to fight an army, call me, because I'm your man. You need something, call me. I'm your man. You have some, some way to put this use, to use better than I do? I'm your man. And so the Christians in medieval times, they came up with this new way of praying. And they would bow. They would get on their knees. 
and they would put their palms together like this. Did you ever, you ever see pictures of praying hands like that? And I always used to look at those pictures and I'm like, who the heck prays like that? Nobody prays like that. It's uncomfortable to hold your hands this way. It's better to fold them or hold them open. Nobody prays like this. Why do they have them pictures? Here, here's, here's why. They, they would bow before a different king, their king of heaven, and they were imagining that they were in the very throne room of the living God. And do you know that's what you and I have access to now through Jesus Christ, access to come near to the very throne of the living God. And they would bow before him and they would bow their heads and they would put their palms together like this and place it, imagining placing it in the king's hands and they would say, I am your man. I'm yours. Heart, soul, mind, strength, money, time, career, finances, all of it, family, relationships, all of it, am yours. And, and I wonder, I wonder who in here God's been speaking to right now over the course of this message and brought something to mind that you're like, oh, there's that area. I got to hear about this again, God. Yeah, he's bringing it to your mind again. And he says to you, I'm the king. You don't get a choice in that. But he says, will you surrender? Will you surrender that to me? Yeah, that. You've been holding it back and I deserve it. I'm worthy of it. Surrender that to me, he says. I'm wondering who in here has been felt conviction? Or who in here has just been living distracted? You know, the recent weeks I've just been distracted in ways I don't want to be distracted. Because he's worthy of more. He's worthy of more than one-seventh of my waking hours. He's worthy of all of it. So I don't know. If the Holy Spirit has been speaking to any of you, but if, if he has, I would just invite you to do something really risky. <laughs> the, the lights are going to lower, and I would just invite you over this time to, to just bow before him. If you're able to get on your knees, if you feel prompted to lay down an area of your life to him or lay down your whole life once again to him in some way, I just invite you to your knees and to put your hands together, palms together. There's space in the front here if you so desire to come up to the front and do that. We're going to worship here in a few moments, but nobody's going to look around. Nobody's going to judge you whether you do or don't do this. This is between you and God. If you feel so prompted to say, Lord, I am yours. I'm your man. I'm your woman. Holy and fully. Lord Jesus, we come before you. every person who's bowed physically, every heart that's bowed spiritually before you this morning. And we invite you to have all of us, so we offer it into your hands, God. Lord, I'm going to lift up anybody in this room right now who's just thinking of this one specific area that maybe they failed a ton in or maybe they've just tried to control it again and again. They've tried to act like they're king in this area of their lives and Lord, I just ask that you would strengthen them and make them aware that you are receiving their worship right now and their offering once again of this area, yes, again to you. For those of us who are just bowing heart and soul and just want to offer you all of it, we want to love you, Lord, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. We're yours. Jesus, you are our king. And you are the best king. We know we don't get a vote. You're king anyway, but we choose you in this moment. We thank you for your sovereignty over our lives. whether this week brought us good news or bad, whether we're scared spitless to offer you any more of our lives or whether we're just bowing joyfully. We honor you, Lord, as the king that you are. Take us and do with us what you will. And may you get all the glory.